Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. But all this I lay to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise in their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that dead will die. But the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. This is the word of God. Church family, this is this passage that Morgan just read to us is a passage that confronts us with the twin realities that everywhere you look, there is sin and death. And everywhere you look, there is life and joy. And these two realities bump up against each other. In the text, the first six verses we just read are about sin and death. And the last four verses we read are about life and joy. They bump up against each other. And that's fitting because in our lives, the realities of sin and death and the realities of life and joy are always bumping up against each other. This can happen In surface ways, if you're driving to a birthday party, you may have to pull over so that 
an ambulance or a fire truck or a hearse can drive by. The birthday party represents life and joy. And the fire truck, the ambulance, or the hearse represents death, pain, sin. You could be sitting in your living room and turn on the TV. And in the same news broadcast, you can see the effects of sin, murder, and robbery, and political mudslinging. And you can see life and joy with your favorite sports team being celebrated. Unless you're a Dallas Cowboy fan like I am. <laughs> It's always sin and death and life and joy, right? <laughs> you could turn on your radio to Pandora or Spotify or whatever you see, and you'll have a song about love that is found, and then right after that, a song about love that is lost. Mm-hmm. But even in our own hearts, there are impulses that bring life, creative impulses to love someone, to Take the trash out for your mom or to call a good friend. But there's also impulses to sin and death, to use your words to hurt people or to break a promise. Life and joy are always bumping up against sin and death. And so it is. So it is in this passage. So we're going to start by facing the heavy theme of death in the first six verses here. And I warn you in advance, what the sage has to say about death is pretty dark. It can be pretty disturbing. And he gives voice to a lot of fears and uncertainties that probably all of us have felt at times and maybe didn't want to articulate. Paying attention to the fears and the anxieties and the uncertainties of the sage can help us face our own concerns and hear the gospel anew. But to prepare us to hear what he says, I want to start by asking you to really think about An image that he uses in verse one. And the image is that we are in the hands of God. Every one of us. Let's read verse one again. Sage says, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Now, when the text talks about the wise and the righteous, it doesn't mean perfect people. As a matter of fact, it's going to go on and say that. Even these individuals who are called wise and righteous have sin in their hearts. They've got evil and madness living inside of them. But when it talks about the wise and the righteous, it's just talking about people who, though they're struggling with sin inside of themselves, they acknowledge God and they trust God and they pray to God and they're asking God to help them to walk in obedience and do what's right. So in other words, Christians, if you trusted in Christ, this is talking about you. And it says the wise and the righteous and all their deeds are in God's hand. I want to ask you to picture that for a second. Okay? The Bible uses this image repeatedly on purpose. So just picture. You got it? The hands of God. Sometimes with kids we sing this little song. Y'all know the song, don't you? He's got the whole world in his hands. But instead of saying he's got the whole world in his hands, I just want you to think he's got me in his hands. So everybody say, he's got me. He's got me. In his hands. In his hands. The hands of God are strong hands. Nothing stronger than them. They're powerful. The hands of God are loving hands. Can you see yourself in his hands? You need to keep that picture in your mind throughout this text. It's saying your past is in God's hands. Your present is in God's hands. And your future is in God's hands. Specifically, I want you to think about this fact 
that the hour of your death is in God's hands. Now, you don't know when you're going to die and you don't know how you're going to die, but God knows and he's already there with you. And in that hour of your death, you're in his hands. Maybe more importantly, the hour after the hour of your death, you're in his hands. So everybody say, we're in his hands. We're in his hands. Now, when I hear that, I find that incredibly comforting, incredibly helpful. And the main reason I find it incredibly helpful and comforting is that my understanding of God's goodness has been deepened by the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins. That's a lot of love. And he rose again for me. So I have a knowledge of God's love that makes me think it's a good deal to be in this God's hands. But one of the things we've got to remember about Ecclesiastes, the sage who spoke these words, he lived before Jesus came. Okay, so he knows some things about God, but there's some stuff we know about God that he didn't know yet. And he's got some anxieties. He's got some uncertainties about this situation which some of us wrestle with ourselves, if only the sage had known the gospel of Jesus Christ, he wouldn't have been in a better situation. Which means, if you can relate to the anxieties the sage is about to express, then the answer for your fears is also the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I told you he has anxieties, and we can see that if we just keep reading verse 1. Look at the end of verse 1. He just said, the wise and the righteous are in God's hand, but now he says, whether it is love or hate, Man does not know. Both are before him. And we've got to ask the question, what does this mean? The sage is saying that he feels uncertain about the future. Is my future going to be good or bad? Is God going to bless me or judge me? The NIV translates verse 1 like this, makes it a little clearer. Listen up. It says, so I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise, what they... And what they do are in God's hands, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits him. So he's saying, in my life, I don't know whether tomorrow is going to be a good day or a bad day. I don't know whether I'm going to be disciplined and punished for my sin or whether I'm going to be blessed. And he seems to be saying in the context of this passage, when I die and when I face what comes after death, I'm not sure. That's his doubt. That's his concern. I don't think the reason the sage says this is that the sage doubts the goodness of God. I think he knows that God is good. Everybody say, God is good. God is good. But because he doesn't know Jesus, I think he's concerned about the implications of the fact that God is good. What he knows is that God loves people and God hates evil. But as we said a second ago, he's about to go on and say, listen, the wise and the righteous, they know that God is good. And that God loves people and that God hates evil. But the wise and righteous also know that they're not completely wise and righteous. They know that evil lives inside of each of us. And so he seems to be wrestling with this fact. If God is good and God is just and God's going to defeat evil, what does that mean for me? Since I know that good and evil both live inside of me. That seems to be his concern. And we hear this concern unfolding in the following verses when he talks about the universality of death. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. He says, it is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. 
As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears, as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event, he's talking about death, happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. In these verses, the sage is saying, everybody dies. Kind people die and cruel people die. Spiritual people die and unspiritual people die. People that believe in God and pray to God and try to obey God, they die. People that don't believe in God die. And people that believe He exists but don't even try to obey Him, they die too. Everybody dies. And everybody has sin in their hearts. And that should concern us. The sage is bothered by this. He says it's an evil under the sun. He goes on in the next few verses to lament this reality. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. It says, But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. What's the sage saying? He's saying, in general... Life is better than death. Would you agree with that? I agree with that. He says the dead can no longer impact human history. They can't change world events. Not only that, they're quickly forgotten. This is one of those annoying, frustrating, discouraging facts about life that Ecclesiastes won't let us forget. Every generation of humans, we live, we die, and we're quickly forgotten. All the good things we do are forgotten, all the bad things, all of our hopes and dreams and fears, they're forgotten. And not only that, we know that's coming, even when we try to forget. He says we're living our whole lives in the shadow of death. So when he says a living dog is better than a dead lion, he's saying on one hand, life is better than death. But on the other hand, even if you're you're alive, you're living in the shadow of death. You're just like a living dog. This is what we call dark humor. Okay? He's, uh, he's using wit here, but he's using it in a really biting and disturbing way because in this context, when you th- hear dog, don't think of a cute little pet. Think of a dirty, mangy, wild animal that nobody cares about. What he's saying is all of life is lived under the shadow of death and I know that God is good, but I know we're all a mix of good and bad. Some of us are better than others, but there's bad in all of us and I don't know what is going to come next and that is terrible. That's basically what he's saying here. So he's causing us to face this reality of death. Now, if you're feeling super discouraged right now, I want you to go back to the image. Everybody say, I'm in God's hands. hands. And before we finish this sermon, we're going to tell you, you have really good reasons from the Bible to feel more hopeful than the sage feels. But right now, it's good for us to feel the weight of his anxiety and of his pain because throughout the world, I mean... Millions of people are feeling this every day. We're living in the shadow of death. I hope that God's going to forgive me and give me life after death, but maybe death is the end or maybe I'm going to be punished for my sin. And what do I do? I need some hope. So death is everywhere, as we've been seeing. And the reason death is everywhere is because sin and evil are also everywhere. Look with me in your bulletin again at the end of verse 3. John Mark already read it for us. We're going to read it again. It says, also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness 
is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. What the sage is saying is that all humans that have hearts, all humans have hearts that are full of evil and full of madness. Now, the sage is observing something that we've come to describe, uh, theologians describe as the doctrine of original sin. Everyone say original sin. Original sin. What original sin means is basically this. God made people in his image to know him and worship him and reflect his goodness to the world. But people rebelled against God. And when they did, their desires were corrupted such that even though we still have some good impulses from from birth, we also have impulses that are evil and harmful to others. That's what you mean by full of evil. Or impulses that are destructive and irrational and self-centered. That's what he means by madness. Now, this is self-evident. <laughs> I won't ask for a show of hands, but I could ask the question. How many of y'all done intentionally done stuff that hurts other people just to get what you want? Don't raise your hand. But we all know it's true. How many of you have ever done something... That was just dumb. That afterwards you were like, now why in the world did I just do that? It's just, it's just madness. And, and, and all of us have done that. Sin is in our hearts. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 19, says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Our hearts are full of sin. And to take this one step further, sin in our hearts explains why evil and corruption is so pervasive in the world. Let me say that again. Sin in our hearts explains why sin and corruption is so pervasive in the world. Now, why is that important to consider? Because on November 8, 2020, you might be tempted to think, man, If the Republicans could just get their act together, everything would be fine. Or, man, if the Democrats could just get their act together, everything would be fine. Or, man, if white people would just get their act together, everything would be fine. (laughs) Or, man, if black people would just get their act together... Everything will be fine. Or, man, if white and black people would just get their act together, everything would be fine. Or, if the men would just get their act together, everything would be fine. Or, if the women would just get their act together, everything would be fine. Or, if the evangelicals would just get their act together, you see where I'm going. If that tribe would get their act together, then everything would be cool. Everything. But what this text is saying is that if the Republicans and the Democrats and the white people and the black people and the everything else people and the men and the women and even the evangelicals got their act together, there would still be evil and corruption in the world. Let that sit. Maybe that's really real. The world is full of evil and corruption because sin is in our hearts. Now, to think about this, later this week you might roll over to the Apostle Peter's second letter. Because in 2 Peter, 
you start at the beginning, what you're going to hear, you're going to hear Peter begin to talk about God's purposes. And God's purposes are this. He created us to be like him. And he redeemed us to be like him. He says it's to make us partakers of the divine nature. But then at the end of the very fourth verse in 2 Peter chapter 1, you're going to hear him talk about those who trusted in Christ. He's going to say this. He's going to say they escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. If you're in Christ, you've escaped from the corruption in the world that is there because of sinful desire. Did you catch that? The corruption that is in the world isn't there because of one party or one tribe or one faction or one gender. Corruption is there because of sinful desire, not realizing all of our hearts, right. which means we want to commit ourselves to good works. But if we were to work hard and eradicate educational inequity, if every school provided every student with an equitable education, there would still be corruption in the world because of sin in our hearts. If we work hard to alleviate physical suffering by providing high-quality health care to uninsured and underinsured kids and adults in our neighborhood, if every person had a primary care physician, there would still be corruption in the world because of sin in our hearts. We can go down the list, talk about immigration and abortion and mass incarceration and political mudslinging or whatever. And those individual issues are not the root of the evil in our world. The Bible tells us that sin is the root of evil in the world which is something that none of us can fix because it's all in all of us. So death is everywhere and sin is everywhere. And that's where the sage leaves us at the end of verse 6. And then all of a sudden, the text gets happy. Amen. It's jarring because he's talking about death, 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 evil, evil, evil. And then all of a sudden, joy, life. That's what happens in verse 7. In verses 7 through 10, the text is effectively saying, evil and death are everywhere. And yet, for all this, choose to embrace joy. Choose to embrace loving relationships. Choose to do good, creative work in the world with vigor. Now, if you want to ask the question, why? How can you all of a sudden talk about life and joy after everything that you just said? The answer is really in the phrase at the end of verse 7, God has already approved what you do. Now, let's talk about what that doesn't mean and what it does mean. It does not mean you can just do whatever you want to and God already approved what you do. All right. If you sin, God does not approve of that. But this sentence, this phrase is here in the context of saying, enjoy God's blessings, choose love, choose life. Effectively, what he's saying is this. The world is filled with sin and death and evil because humans rebelled against God. But God is still the God of joy and life. God's the God of creation. So when you choose not to let the despair and the darkness and the death define how you think and feel and live, but to live with the grain of God's life and goodness of creation, you're living with God's blessing. That's what he wants. So he tells us, choose joy, choose life, trust God. And specifically in this text, we've seen several of these moments in the book of Ecclesiastes where all of a sudden the sage will talk about God's goodness and talk about joy. But in this text, he's telling us, side with God, side with the Creator, side on the side of joy and life and love. And he tells us three ways this manifests itself, okay? So I'm going to tell you the three. First, everybody say festivity. Festivity. 
Festivity is a better word for party. Okay. Feast. Celebrate. We see this in verses 7 through 8. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved of what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. That verse 8 there is talking about wear the clothes and put on the oil that would be typical for a time of feasting and celebration in this cultural context. What it's saying is celebrate abundance. God is the God of life. You don't throw a feast when you've got just enough. You throw a feast when you've got more than what you need. Celebrate life. Celebrate abundance. Enjoy God's generosity. Rejoice in the fact that not only has God given you what you need, He's given you a lot more than what you need. Anybody today want to testify that you have more than what you need? I mean, when the Bible talks about contentment, in places like 1 Timothy 6, it says, If you have food and clothing, be content. I've always struck by how short that list is. <laughs> Doesn't even say shelter, right? That's a short list. I've got food and clothing plus 10,000 other blessings. So it's saying celebrate abundance. Celebrate God's generosity. When you get this, by the way, you start participating in and reflecting God's generosity because you're not afraid of running out, which is what Jesus is talking about. Luke chapter 14, verses 13 through 14, when he tells you how to throw a party. He says this, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Likewise, in the Old Testament feasts, they're always told, share what you've got with the poor, with those who are in need. Because this is saying, choose a way of life that says, though there is violence and sin and death and evil and hatred everywhere, God is the God of life and abundance. So we're going to celebrate and we're going to share. First thing is festivity. Second thing is loving relationships. Everybody say, loving relationships. Loving relationships. Ecclesiastes 9.9. Enjoy life. With the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life. That's funny, isn't it? <laughs> vain here is that word hevel we keep talking about. Everybody say hevel. Hevel. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your hevel life. That God has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life. And in all your toil at which you toil under the sun. Now this is a good marriage counseling verse. Because... I know that a lot of times, one of the reasons that a lot of times people who've been married for two years are frustrated is because they thought marriage was going to equal bliss. And now they're recognizing marriage ha still happens in the land of sin and death. Life is still frustrating. Life is still difficult. But the sage gets it. He doesn't say, find the perfect someone that you were made for and then life is beautiful and easy. What he says is your life is going to be confusing. Your life is going to be frustrating. You're about to toil, but it's a gift from God. So find somebody that you love to help you through it. That's what it's saying. Here it's celebrating marriage in particular. And for the married people in the room, what the text is saying is enjoy each other. Enjoy your relationship. Don't take your spouse for granted. Treasure that relationship. Encourage each other when it's hard. Help each other trust Jesus and be more like Jesus. But aren't you glad in Christ we don't have to be married to be fully human? Amen. We got a relationship with Jesus and we got the family of God. So I don't think this is limited to marriage relationship with your friendships, with your brothers and sisters in Christ, with your family. Treasure those relationships. So everybody say loving relationships. Loving relationships. And then finally, vigorous work. So festivity, loving relationship and vigorous work. Everybody say work hard. Work hard. Ecclesiastes 9.10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. You might underline that phrase. Do it with your might. Don't drag your feet through life. With a half-hearted attitude towards whatever work you're doing. 
For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. What he's saying is we have a short time to have an impact on human history. Now, for the Christian, this is spoiler alert, gospel's coming. When we die, we get to go to heaven, right? So we've got good stuff ahead of us. We've got joy with Christ ahead of us. But we've only got a short period of time to impact world history before we enter into that zone. So he's saying, don't let sin and death and darkness surprise you or discourage you. Instead, whatever good you can find to do in life, do it with all your heart. Do it with all your vigor because God is with you. God's going to bless you, which means a lot of different things. I mean, I think this definitely means keep sharing the gospel vigorously. Don't let your zeal flag for sharing the gospel with your neighbors. It means keep making disciples. It means keep helping other people grow in their faith. It keeps, means keep being merciful to those who are hurting. It means keep fighting against oppression and trying to bring God's justice and peace into our world. It means all of that. But I think it's also saying any, any, any good work that you can do. If you're sweeping, if you're changing a diaper, if you're cleaning up branches that fell down in the ice storm, you're choosing to work with the grain of God's creation to bring His peace and shalom into a world of chaos. If you're balancing budgets to keep businesses growing so we can employ people, if you're teaching little kids so they can learn how to read and write, whatever your daily work is, if it's honest work, it says, do it with all your heart because you're made in the image of God to be creative and that reality is bigger than the reality of sin and death. So everybody say, festivity. Festivity. Loving relationship. Loving relationship. Vigorous work. Vigorous work. So this sage gives us some hope. But in Ecclesiastes, this hope is still kind of vague. It's still kind of fuzzy. And he's saying, enjoy life, but life is still vain. But hope becomes clearer and sharper as we keep reading the Bible. When we read passages like this one, we have to keep in mind the idea of progressive revelation. Let's just say that. It was a progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. Now, progressive revelation is the idea that God in, unveiled himself and his purposes progressively. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 say, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So God spoke by the prophets, spoke through Moses, spoke through David, spoke through Isaiah. And, and through each of these men, God revealed who he is and what he is doing. Everything he spoke was true. But the revelation of himself and his purposes became fuller over time. God told Abraham, remember back in Genesis 12, he would make him into a nation. But Abraham didn't have the law of Moses detailing how to live as God's people. Moses had the law. But he didn't have the covenant of David in which God promised to send a king who would reign over the world with peace and justice. David had that covenant, but he didn't know what Isaiah knew, that a suffering servant would come and bear this into the people. And neither David nor Isaiah knew what we now know in Christ, that that king from the line of David is the servant who would suffer and bear the sins. See what I mean? So there's progressive revelation. And this is the idea. You get a full revelation of God and his purpose as you read through the Bible. So the sage in our text doesn't know much about what happens after death. So he's still a little bit vague, even though he has hope, because he knows God is good. Death still hangs over him like a cloud. But the prophets of the Old Testament had more revelation than the authors of the wisdom literature. 
So I want to take us to a passage of Scripture, and I invite you in your Bibles to turn with me to the book of Isaiah. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 25. And in this book of Isaiah, we see a fuller picture of the hope that we have after death. So Isaiah 25, we're going to start in verse 6. Isaiah is going to give us a glimpse of life in the new creation of God. And if you thought that what John Mark just talked about was good, yo, this is good. (laughs) Verse 6. On this mountain, talking about the mountain of, of, of God, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. Mm. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Now in these little three verses, we have a picture of what life's going to be like in the new creation. It's a place in which all people, that is every tribe, tongue, nation, will dwell forever with God, with bountiful feasting and joy and the absence of death and pain and tears. Notice what characterizes this feasting place. First of all, it's a mountain which mountains are important throughout Scripture, but particularly mountains have this, this thing that's really good for being on a mountain, is that on a mountain, there's no threat of outside forces disturbing peace. On a mountain, you can see everything. Anybody coming against you, you've got the upper hand on a mountain. But not only is this a mountain, this is the mountain of the Lord of hosts. He's his Lord. This is the, the covenant name of God. The God who is self-existing, has always existed Meaning the everlasting God who sustains all of creation and is all-powerful, this is his dwelling place, which means there's no evil. Evil doesn't have a chance of encroaching on what's happening in God's place. But third, this is a mountain of festivity. We have festivity now. We celebrate birthdays and weddings and graduations. But this is a, a scene in which there is so much food in abundance. It's like it pales Thanksgiving. This isn't... Fast food this is better than grandma's from, from we used to call it grandma from grandma's food. <laughs> this is feasting food. It's rich food full of marrow. It's aged wine, well refined, and it's a mountain of loving relationships, but not loving relationships that are siloed, that are homogeneous. This is across ethnic lines. Diversity doesn't stand in the way of unity on this mountain. Mm-hmm. Isn't that sound good? That's good. It says all peoples are invited to the banquet table on this mountain. And look what is absent from this feast. The covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. So where the sage has this cloud of death still hanging over his hope, what Isaiah is saying is that on the mountain of God, that covering is going to be gone. That veil is going to be gone. Death will be swallowed up forever. Death is absent from this feast. So Isaiah knows something the sage and Ecclesiastes does not yet know. That there's going to come a time in which death is no longer a cloud that overshadows all of life. There's going to come a time in which all the tears and the pain and the reproach that are symptoms of sin will be taken away. 
that death and sin will be swallowed up by God himself. Now, in this journey of revelation we read in the Bible, the agonizing questions of Ecclesiastes and the glorious hopes of Isaiah are both pointing forward to the same place. And what's his name? Jesus. It's all about Jesus, guys. When we get to the New Testament, what we read over and over and over is that Jesus is God coming to rescue us from sin and death. Let me just read you a couple glorious passages. I'm going to read you Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. I'm going to read it in the CEV so it's easy to follow. Y'all just listen to this. It says, We are people of flesh and blood. That is why Jesus became one of us. Everybody say, God with us. God with us. God the Son. Second person of the Trinity. He came and took on flesh and blood to live with us so that He could die. text goes on to say, That is why Jesus became one of us. He died to destroy the devil who had power over death, but He also died to rescue all of us who lived every day in fear of dying. The devil was defeated in the death of Christ. We're set free from the fear of dying by Christ. How does that work? So many passages we could go to. Let me just point out to you one, one more. 1 Corinthians 15, 56-57 says, The sting of death is sin. Now that's talking about what Chauncey was talking about a second ago. Why do we die? Death itself is a symptom of the fact that we have been alienated, separated from the God who is eternal life. Sin is the disease. Death is the symptom. It says the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Meaning, as much as we read God's commandments, we still got evil and madness in our heart. So we can sit in church and say, I'm going to be good, I'm going to be good, and then we're going to go out into the world and be bad. That's what it's saying. And sometimes the more we hear those commandments, the more they entice us and draw out our sinful desires. Because evil and madness in our heart, the law can't save us. But then, the text goes on to say, 1 Corinthians 15, 57, But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He bears our sin on the cross. On the cross, Jesus is holding in His own flesh, in His own body, my guilt. My shame, your guilt, your shame, the worst things you've ever done. When you're feeling what the sage was feeling, like, I don't know if God's going to let me into heaven. He may send me to hell forever. I don't know if God's going to punish me because I did this. And then the tape starts running through your head of all the worst things you've done. Everything on that tape, Jesus took it on himself on that cross. And he took all the consequences for it, all the broken relationships, all the legal requirements of God's law. He took it himself. Which means all that damage that sin does, Jesus already bore it. And then when He rose from the grave, He defeated sin and Satan and death. So that by grace, anybody who simply trusts in Jesus, we're forgiven of our sins. Which means we don't have to be scared of death anymore. It means that on the other side of death for us is a deeper union with Christ than we've ever experienced, followed by resurrection life. So that for us, the enemy death starts to look even a little bit like a friend when Paul, I mean, he really believed the gospel because in Philippians 1, he's saying, I don't know if I want to live or die because the longer I live, the more I get to tell people about Jesus. But when I die, I get to be with him in a way that's better than ever before. Now, to help you understand the significance of this, I want to go back to the picture that we started with this sermon as we're getting ready to wrap up. Remember yourself in the hands of God. Look, we got some kids in the room, so we're going to do kinesthetic learning. Really, this is good for the adults too, but y'all wouldn't do it if I just said it was for you. Right. So everybody go like this. 
Can you see yourself in God's hands? You picturing yourself there? Now, as you picture that, I want you to picture it again. You're sitting there. I want you to think your past is in His hands. Your present is in His hands. Your future is in His hands. The hour of your death, He's already there with you and you're in His hands. The hour after the hour of your death, He's already there with you. You're in His hands. But now I want you to picture this specifically. Those are nail-pierced hands. And the scars in the hands of Jesus that are holding you are signs of God's love for you. They are proof that if you've trusted Jesus Christ, you are safe in His hands. Now, I want you to hear these words of Jesus from John chapter 10, verse 27 through 28. He says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. That's the promise of the Gospel. Now, some of you believe that, and you just had a little personal revival in your soul. We don't know because nobody said amen or anything. Amen. Thanks, Chauncey. But for the rest of you that are all wallowing in your doubt, good news for you. You're not the first one to doubt those hands of Jesus. You remember Thomas? Mm -hmm. Thomas didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. He didn't believe he was stronger than death. He said, I won't believe unless I see the nail-pierced hands. But listen to what happened. John chapter 20, verse 27. Jesus shows up. He said to doubting Thomas, And all us sinners, put your fingers here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I think that's the word of Christ to us as a church today. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, do not disbelieve, disbelieve, but believe. believe. In these loving hands, you can have hope. In these loving hands, you are secure. You don't have to deal with the agonizing doubts that the sage had. And if you deal with them, just know that you're not alone. But that's what you fight against with the gospel. Spiritual warfare, like Ephesians 6 talks about, is Satan coming and speaking words of temptation and condemnation and sin and death. And you fight it with the gospel, with the shield of faith, with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And once you believe that, now you know you're safe, you know that you're secure, and then you can come back to that list of how to choose joy, and it's even better. Why do we celebrate? Why do we feast? Because we know my sins are paid for in full, and I'm going to share in the marriage supper of the Lamb. My, all of my needs are fully met, past, present, and future. So I, I don't have to fear scarcity. I could celebrate life, and I could share it abundantly. That's right. We could keep on feasting. And we can embrace these loving relationships, forgiving one another, Pressing in to fight for that loving relationship even when it's hard because it's not about you being my idol, Savior, who's going to save me and make me happy. It's about me embracing you as Christ embraced me on the cross. And that relationship based on grace, we can love each other steadfastly and we can know that nothing, not even death, can end that relationship if we're both in Christ. And that thing about doing good work, listen, we don't just have to sit back and complain and bellyache and moan about the world being messed up. We're safe in the hands of Jesus. we got nothing to fear, nothing to prove, nothing to lose. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we can go do all that stuff. On, we can do the good stuff that Chauncey said wouldn't solve the world's problems. Matter of fact, we're already doing that. Let's go teach all the kids, right? Let's go start all the clinics. Let's go try and make the best political systems we can in this broken world. But while we're doing all that, we can tell the gospel that can save a soul from sin and death. We can be about the work of God. 
knowing that He's with us. So, friends, we're about to go to the Lord's table today. And as you go to the Lord's table, I want you to hear the voice of Jesus saying, this is my body, this is my blood, with His nail-pierced hands. He's saying to you, you can trust me. You can depend on me. And when you go, take it. This is your declaration before God and before all of us here. When we go to that table, we're saying, Jesus, I may have sin struggles, and I may have doubts, and I may still sometimes battle even this fear of death, but I'm saying, your hands is the safe place where I want to be, and that's where I'm placing my life. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which frees us from the chains of sin, breaks every chain. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which removes the veil hanging over the nations, which frees us from the fear of death. We thank you for the victory over Satan that is ours in Christ. Lord, we believe, and as we struggle with doubts like doubting Thomas, would you come by your Holy Spirit and help our unbelief? Even now as we sing and as we pray and as we come to the Lord's table, would you awake faith? Lord, I want to pray specifically, there's probably multiple people in this room who right now they're hearing this word, but they do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. I pray that your Holy Spirit would do the converting work right now of calling people to turn from sin and trust in Jesus to place themselves in your hands, Lord. And I pray for all those who have trusted Jesus, uh, but they drift and get distracted or get weary and discouraged that your Holy Spirit now would be calling us back to joy and life because we know that the joy and life and creative redeeming power of God is bigger than the sin and death we see around us. Pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.